Welcome to the podcast, Let's Talk Sped Law, a podcast dedicated to discussing special education rights of children with disabilities. I'm your host and special education attorney, Jeff Forte. Now let's talk Sped Law. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Sped Law. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. John Molteni. Um, I've been meaning to have Dr. Molteni on for quite some time, um, and uh, his schedule permitted us to do this recording today. So uh, it's great that John's on the, uh, on the podcast. Dr. Molteni is currently the Director of Behavioral Health at PRISM Autism Education and Consultation. He is a clinician and educator with over 20 years of experience in the field of autism and developmental disabilities as a psychologist, behavior analyst, and as an educator. And he's provided clinical and educational services for children on the spectrum with and or with developmental disabilities for children from as young as preschool all the way through adulthood in various settings. He had the opportunity um, previously in his career to establish a unique program within public schools and a clinical program at the Hospital for Special Care, uh, where he launched the Autism Center, an outpatient clinic, and um, it's one of 10 in the country. Now he is over at PRISM, Autism Education and Consultation, and he is here today to share not only news about their clinic, but also about their new launch, PRISM Academy. Uh, John, welcome to Let's Talk Sped Law. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. So, you know, let, let's talk first about how your, uh, how your role um, has grown um, on the senior management of, of PRISM and what you're doing over there right now. What are you currently doing over there? Sure. Yeah, well, I came over to PRISM in uh, the end of 20. 20- 19, so December 2019, and that was to sort of open up a behavioral health clinic um, where we could provide diagnostic services, um, school-based consultation, IEEs, um, independent educational evaluations, you know, and provide some psychotherapy. These were some of the things I was doing at the hospital for special care, and we were going to start that over at Prism Academy, which we have done, um, and we continue to provide those services. Uh, shortly into my tenure at Prism, uh, and literally four months after I started, the uh, pandemic started. And um, we started to have some requests from prior learners at the clinic. Our clinic is an intensive, early inter- intensive behavioral intervention clinic. Um, we generally serve children from as young as one year to about six years uh, of age. And so some of our learners had left to go to public school And they started to return um, because their schools had closed and we were still open as a medical facility and we were still serving children. Um, Of course, we said yes. Uh, These were families that we had served for several years and we were uh, sort of eager to have them come back and and join our our clinic. And when we did so, we kind of saw a lot of them came back with skills that were we saw some regressions, parents were reporting some regressions, we were seeing some difficulties in terms of their skills that they had demonstrated with us and in their homes prior to their leaving that were no longer being demonstrated. Uh, We had had a a fairly uh, robust strategic plan to start a school at some point, um, giving me some time to develop behavioral health and and, and do some other things. 
but this sort of accelerated our timeline. And, and we said, well, what can we do now uh, to really prevent this um, from occurring again? Um, interestingly, when we, I'm sure you've had these conversations with other uh, folks on your podcast is when a kid turns, ages out of the special education system, we often talk about that as a cliff, right? There's a cliff that they fall off and services are, are not necessarily where they should be. At very young ages, there is also a cliff. Um, when you receive 40 hours of intensive uh, intervention and then you attend a, a public school, not to say that public schools aren't intensive, but the level of intensity to address core symptoms of autism and while also addressing educational needs does tend to fall off. Um, so our goal was to say, how do we continue to provide those intensive services within an educational framework? Um, and so we decided to start Prism Academy uh, at the end of August of last year. And, uh, you know, we're currently in our first year of operation. That's great. You know, it's not often that a school is a new special education school gets created. So um, and, and gets created during during a covid pandemic. So I'm sure you have your work cut out for you on that front. Um, but let's get into it a little more. Um, you know, before, before we get into PRISM Academy, in general, right, what are kind of the general clinical considerations that a parent should be thinking about with their public school district team when they're thinking about or seeking and requesting a uh, more therapeutic private outplacement, such as a school like Prism Academy. Yeah, yeah, and it's certainly not for everyone. And and one of the the duties and and that I've held over the past uh, well dozen or so years is doing evaluations for schools, districts, or for parents, and talk about what types of programming uh, would benefit the student that I'm I'm working with. And um, you know, most of the time when we think about the needs of the student and what they might need uh, uh, educationally, you know, it, it always comes down to in intensity. You know, it's a lot of it is about how often are we targeting those skills that we've identified in the IEP so that the individual can practice those skills? Um, what is the training like of the staff to support that across an entire school day in different environments? Um, what is the, 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 the teamwork uh, capacity? Uh, how is the, what is the ability of that team to get together and you know, universally apply some of those structures uh, within a student's day? And when those things aren't able to be accomplished effectively in, in the public school, then at that point, perhaps there are some uh, additional considerations for placement that need to be made. Um, so it's, again, it's never, it's never something that where I say this can't be done in a public school. When I, when I write reports, they say, this is what the student needs. This is what this individual needs. Um, if you can do it in the public school, great. If you, if, but if you're not able to do so, then you need to consider a placement where that needs to occur. Right, right. And, and in your role of providing uh, evaluations, educational evaluations, uh, you're often brought in to help determine what is the appropriate programming 
and where that programming should be uh, implemented in, a, in whether it be a public placement, public school district placement, or a private outplacement, right? Correct. If that's a use, if that's a question that the team has as to whether or not a public school or a, an outplacement is appropriate, then you know the, I will answer those questions for sure. And um, you know, I'm always uh, I, I always go in optimistically, thinking that a, a school, a public school, can do it. Um, I'm a big fan of public schools, so um, no, nothing that I do in in terms of my current practice uh, or the development of Prism Academy is because, you know, I don't believe public schools are, are, can't do it, but in certain circumstances, the match between the students' needs and the school programming just doesn't line up. Right, right. And, you know, oftentimes when I have this conversation with clients and potential clients, we get, in, we get into the legalities of the least restrictive environment or the, or the acronym, the vernacular, special ed, alphabet soup, LRE. Um, can you walk us through kind of the level of continuum from a clinician's perspective of the least restrictive environment? Yeah, one of the, I think actually as a, as a behavior analyst, one of our um, ethical guidelines is, is least restrictive, but most effective, right? So there's a combination there. It can't simply be well, you're in the public school, so that is the least restrictive environment, therefore you need to be there. It's where is the least restrictive environment where the child can still access their educational services, where they can make the gains that they need to make. Um, so that's how I think about it. Um, and, you know, a homebound instruction, right, being probably the most restrictive setting you can be in, Um you know, but if you're in a place and at a district placement, again, like Prism Academy, um, I wouldn't say that's a, a, a restrictive environment. It is it is one where you do not have access to typically developing peers. Um, but I do I think the the mistake that people make when they talk about the availability or access to typical peers is the assumption that children will just model peers or that they'll model the appropriate peers. Um, so the argument is often presented as, well, we're going to place them in an inclusive general education setting, and they will have good peer models available to them in that classroom setting, which is true. However, you have to consider two things. One is the children who do the best, the models that you want kids to model, often aren't getting the attention of the teacher or the people that you want to give them the attention, right? So the, the kids who are getting the attention tend to be the kids who may not be doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what's salient to the student who's supposed to be modeling in the classroom is, okay, that seems to get the teacher's attention and the teacher's attention is valuable to me. Maybe I'll spend some time doing what that kid's doing. Um, so modeling, right, is, is again, I'm not, no argument that kids model other kids' behaviors. It's just a question of you have to direct them to model certain kids' behaviors, and you have to ensure that the peer models in the classroom know that they're peer models, right? Give them some, it's valuable to them. Sometimes they really like that and say, hey, can you help, you know, Johnny over here, you know, he want, he's coming to our class, can you help him out? And you'll often find students who are really willing to do that. But, you know, ultimately though, uh, again, least restrictive has to be the most effective for that particular student. Right, right, right. Um, you know, one thing, there's this cliche, I guess, in special education law that parents of a child with a disability that are offered outplacement often don't want it 
And parents that want outplacement often don't get it. Um, can, can you kind of peel back that kind of cliche and, and how are you often getting involved with helping to determine what the appropriate programming should be when there is some contentiousness as to whether or not a child needs outplacement between the, the child's school team versus the child's, you know, parent team. Right. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of the, the conundrum around that is really the, the, the perception of permanence of an outplacement from a school or from a parent, right? If I'm a parent and I, I want my child to be successful in a public school and, and they're not being successful, A, I, you know, there are certainly, I've worked with families as well, and there certainly can be that feeling of, well, I've, I've failed in some way or some manner. It's not, you know, not necessarily that the school has not provided these things, but I personally have, I feel bad that this has happened. Um, you might have children with challenging behavior and the parents feel bad that, you know, there's been injury or other people have been hurt or things like that. And, and then there's this permanence of, well, are you going to take him back? Or are you going to take her back at some point if, if you place them in this place um, or they go visit those places that are being recommended? And maybe there are some things about that that you're, you're not comfortable with um, as a parent. Um, and I think from the school side, it's you know, sometimes it's give us a chance or give us another chance or, or give us another chance. Or again, it's that permanence of how often does a child who gets outplaced come back to district? Um, and I think one of the things that we're trying to address, given that we work with a younger population, is hopefully you know, give us a couple more years. <laughs> give us some time with this, this young learner to get them ready. And you'll have them for a much longer period of time, right? Rather than have them fail first or go in and fail and then have them come back or, or wait till they're older. And then you, you really lose a lot of time. You know, this is why we value early intervention so much. Everybody values early intervention. Um, and early intervention doesn't just mean age of child. It means as soon as there is a sign of risk um, for something problematic, right? Uh, challenge, a challenging behavior that emerges in a, in a third grader. Well, you want to uh, address that early. Um, again, not necessarily outplaced, but again, this is sort of the idea. So we've had these kids for this really intensive experience as very young children. And, you know, maybe they just need a little bit more. You know, we have data that they're making progress and maybe we just give us a little bit more time with them and and then they will come back. I don't, I don't, I don't know many parents who would say, um, you know, I know parents would say once they get out place that they don't want to go back to the public school. I, I mean, I get that. But uh, a lot of parents would very much like their child to be in the public school in their neighborhood school with um, people that they know and, and things like that. So um, but yeah, I think it's that that permanence piece that gets very that's probably that gets to be a, a real problematic uh, yeah. impression, I think, from both parties. Yeah. Well, you know, you raised a really interesting um point, and that is, you know, early intervention, right? We're supposed to be proactively, a school team is supposed to be proactively looking to advance a child's progress year over year, rather than, you know, reactive, where let's first have the child fail or not make progress and then respond to that failure. And, you know, from our conversations that we've had, this is where Prism Academy is really looking to fill that void that, that Connecticut really has right now in our state. 
you know, we're, let's talk Sped Law as a national podcast, but for the folks that are not Connecticut residents, can you go through and talk about the, the, you know, the student that Prism Academy serves and, um, you know, kind of put it into like a, a clinical term. So for parents that are seeking a Prism Academy like program in their state, they know what they should be looking for because you're serving such a young population, right? What, 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 what's the student that is, is kind of the ideal applicant um, for consideration to your program at Prism Academy? Right. So in, in our first year uh, of operation, we are really looking at a, a younger age group. So an elementary age group, we'd be focusing initially on our kindergarten through fifth grade type of, of students. Um, there are children with autism spectrum disorders or related disabilities, um, and they tend to be on the what we would call diagnostically level two, level three intensity in terms of their needs, both in both in their social communication and interaction and their restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior. So these are our children with fairly intensive needs as far as their communication skills, their ability to navigate their environments, um, their routinized or rigid behaviors, or in some cases, stereotypic behaviors. Um, and who require a good deal of support. Um, we also utilize uh, applied behavior analysis. Um, so one of the things that we have to look for are, you know, families who are, you know, obviously families who have been at prison before have experienced uh, ABA quite a bit. And so they are very comfortable with that. But that would be something that uh, should we get a referral from a school district, they, they, the recommendation would be that this child needs a school that utilizes um, educational practices based in the principles of human behavior. So um, that's kind of what we're looking for at this point. Right. So early on ABA intervention um, with the goal that you're making the child more access ready to eventually uh, potentially go back into public school uh, setting where mm -hmm. they're going to have that, you know, more of the behavioral understanding, the social pragmatic understanding um, that they would have not had had they continued the course in the public school system. Right, it's sort of developing those prerequisite skills, those skills you need in order to get to that point. You know, I, I think there's a, again, another sort of big discussion or, or a big point you hear a lot is on readiness. Are they ready? You know, are they ready to do this? If you wait for someone to be ready, they're never gonna be ready. Um, so we do try, again, we're trying to be proactive here and say, let's develop those skills that align very much with uh, the school environment, the, the general community, the home environment, right? And we teach to that. We teach to those environments. We don't teach skills to fit in a, a specific locale or, or only that exist within the walls of Prism Academy. These are skills that we are developing that will bridge into those other settings that are generalizable. And we look for those things. We include parent training in our programming so that parents will, we, we can check with, are you seeing this? You know, when we're talking about our educational planning, we're talking about generalization and maintenance of skills is part of our mastery criterion. This is what we're looking for. Um, we can't just say, well, you've achieved this at this level. You know, you've done 80% across a couple of days. Great, you're, you're done. Um, no, we keep practicing. We keep doing it. We keep embedding it within the environment. Um, the other thing that we do at PRISM 
in, in general, right, in our clinic and in our school, is we use a lot of natural environment teaching, a lot of uh, naturalistic and embedded instruction. So it's, um, it's one of those things that it's part of the, as the children are moving through their day, these learning opportunities are, are presented within the environment. The environment itself uh, evokes some of these responses. Uh, it's not just directed by, it's not just by a, a, an adult asking the kid questions all day. You know, they're playing with the child, they're engaging with them and, you know, again, embedding those um, instructional opportunities throughout the entire day. Right, right. Now, the other thing that PRISM offers is then school-based consultation. So arguably, if then one of your students is now access ready to be reintegrated back into their, um, their public school district, you and your team can then go back in to say, okay, we're going to transition the child back. We're going to have some additional supports, some school, a school consultation team to start to recreate and implement some of the programming that was done within Prism Academy back into the school district, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And again, not to replicate a classroom from Prism Academy into a public school is to say, here's what your, here's what your, public school looks like. Here's how your school functions. We're, we, our goal would be to transition that student into that environment, not to necessarily replicate a, a we, we don't want to stick a classroom that doesn't fit into a school building. Uh, we want to make sure that student is able to navigate the, that school building or, or participate in that environment. Right, right. Now, as far as location goes, uh, Prism Academy, it's in gr- the greater Hartford area, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, you're, you and the PRISM Academy team are looking for students both from parent referrals as well as school district referrals. Correct. Yep. Um, and can you, can you kind of walk us through how um, the, the parent referral process is different from the school referral process for parents that are wanting to engage their district in a potential referral over to PRISM? Yeah, so, uh, you know, if we have a parent that's interested in attending PRISM Academy, um, we would, you know, be looking to see how they are engaging or how they're going to support the, the tuition of, of attending an intensive program that we're providing. Um, certainly that's available, um, although it's probably unlikely that a parent would fund that at, at their own expense, but um, we would encourage most parents who are seeking that to come talk to us about our program. If they are comfortable with that, then we would sort of talk about the process of of getting that done. Now, most of that then becomes a legal discussion um, because it involves some contact with their school district to which, at which point I divest myself and say, I'm not an attorney. I do not give legal advice, nor should I. Anything I say, you should, you know, (laughs) will get you into trouble. So um, I I would give them several attorneys that they could talk to. Um, Usually it's attorneys. Um, Some parents will say, oh, uh, we'll talk about maybe an advocate or something. And, you know, um, I generally think it's best to consult with an attorney first. Um, And they may say, you're good enough to go with an advocate. It depends on the relationship with the school district if you have one. Um, or not. Again, we're talking about a lot of younger uh, children at this point who we're talking about who some have been in schools before um, and some have not. And uh, I think the, the greater challenge is for the ones who have not. I think, you know, you and I have talked about that a lot, right? So we just talked about it earlier, right? This is the idea that the, 
school of one, I sort of deal with that. But usually, yeah, usually either we tend to direct our families to have conversations with attorneys first um, because we don't want to make recommendations about placement. Obviously, that's not our that's not our job. Um, we, all we do is present the program and ensure that the child is a, is a good fit and the parents think we're a good fit for them. Um, right, so that's right. kind of our, our first step. Right, right. Now, um, let's talk about, uh, you know, the the approval process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Prism Academy is going through that. Super exciting, by the way. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, the, the approval process is something for those that are that are interested to know. It's, you know, you kind of pass the rigor and the, the accreditations, if you will, to be recognized by the Connecticut State Department of Education, Special Education Division Bureau, to be a program that is fit for the for the children that you serve, which is um, children on the spectrum. Um, how, how are we in that? How are you doing in that process? And when do you think that process will be achieved? Yeah, it's actually a great question. I, we just had a conversation this week um, with the folks at the state. Um, they've been really helpful in our, in our discussions. Um, we just started our program at the end of August. So essentially we are running a full school year. Uh, so into June, 180 days. Um, so when we finish our school year, we will officially have been in operation for a year and we will then submit our application, which includes uh, binders full of uh, policies and procedures and uh, um, discussions about staffing and do we have all the relevant staff and the right certifications and all of our appropriate uh, background checks and those types of things. So. Um, how are we developing our curriculum? So once we submit that, then the state reviews it and they do a site visit and um, our, we, we hopefully um, ideally get approval. Um, we get a one-year approval um, because that's when we would have more of a um, uh, contracts with the school system. This year, we don't have any contracts with school districts because school districts don't like to outplace to schools that aren't approved. Um, which we knew, and that makes sense. Um, so when we are approved and we have contracts, we'll then address any issues that arise in that uh, site visit or the review of our application materials. And at the end of our second year, we get a, I believe it's a three, four or five year approval after that. That's great. I mean, as I was mentioning before, it's so exciting to follow the, the growth of Prism Academy because there's not many schools that just, grow and get created these days, especially during COVID. So, um, and certainly with your expertise at the helm and your past experiences um, with the hospital for special care, I, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be easy walking to get, to get approved. I'm, I'm confident, no doubt. Um, what is the, well, thank you. what is the, um, you know, the, the, the student, to support, you know, staff support ratio that you're looking to to do for the students that you're serving um, within Prism Academy.
Yeah, so our, right now we have 12 students and in our, in our program we have uh, two behavior analysts. We have, a, uh, we have two teachers, um, a special education teacher. We actually have a teacher who is a uh, early childhood educator, special educator and a uh, regular education teacher grades one through three. So we are, she has lots of experience. She's also a behavior analyst. Um, so we're very fortunate to have a number of folks involved uh, who are uh, who are coming from a behavior analytic framework. Um, and uh, in addition, we have uh, they receive related services, speech and occupational therapies through some uh, providers who are working within our building. They're not part of they're not uh, part of Prism Autism Education and Consultation, um, uh, Speakology, and Adapt and Learn. Just because. Shout out to them because they're great. Um, and they are so uh, as those uh, children have come through PRISM, uh, the clinic, uh, they've also been working with these providers for speech and occupational therapy for, for uh, several years as well. So there's a, so some great continuity um, and it allows us some good collaboration with um, uh, the related services uh, people as well. Uh, a number of our students have um, augmentative uh, and alternative communication devices. Um, so again, having that um, collaborative uh, opportunity with the folks who are providing those uh, services and developing those uh, communication uh, structures is, is very helpful. So um, yeah, so we're hoping to continue those, those ratios uh, well, the high level of behavior analytic support with a high level of our educator supports. And uh, ideally we continue to have educators who come in who have behavior analytic backgrounds. So it just makes that communication piece a lot easier. Um, and again, those folks who have a background in education just provide so much in terms of curriculum development and organizing our, our, our classroom structures and, and getting again, that, that, that more naturalistic, that more school feel, but again, with a high level of intensity as far as our instruction goes. Right, right. Now- Oh, and sorry, everybody has a one-to-one -one paraprofessional. Sorry, I forgot yeah, to mention yeah. that. Um, and most of, our, most of our technicians are um, registered behavior technicians, um, but they also receive a, a, a lot of oversight by our behavior analysts um, during the week. So uh, most of our children receive about four hours per week of um, oversight by a behavior analyst. So um, I think you'd be challenged to find that level of support in right. a lot of other settings. Yeah. 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 Now, now COVID has certainly thrown a wrench in our entire education system, obviously. Um, how is it starting school during the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, well, um, we had had some good systems of support in place when the pandemic started, as far as the clinic goes, a lot of, um, we had made some transitions as far as where um, our learners were receiving their instruction. And we had a few learners that would really benefit from remaining in the clinic, remained in the clinic. Um, as our safety precautions uh, developed towards the, uh, over the summer, we started to return more of our learners back to uh, the center. So most of the students who were, who started Prism Academy were of that group that were still receiving clinic-based services um, throughout the early parts of the pandemic. Again, because they were the um, the students who had the most significant needs. Um, so we just continued on uh, during the fall, um, where we monitored every day. We checked in with our parents about their how they felt, how their children felt. We were very conservative as far as. Um, any sort of, um, you know, stuffy nose, cough, sneeze, 
you know, our staff would, would, we would not have them come in. We would have, we had several staff who were probably been tested four or five, six times already um, just to be safe. And, you know, uh, I will knock on wood here. We've been very successful um, in not having any um, high levels of uh, spread. Certainly since Prison Academy started, we've had some uh, community-based exposures, but none of that has occurred in the school building itself. So um, we continue to operate um, with all the relevant precautions. Um, our, luckily, um, since we are, uh, Prism is a medical facility, uh, the clinic part is, um, we were all able to get our, our vaccinations uh, started earlier. So we're, we're, a number of us are on that, uh, are, are on that track already. So, uh, you know, I think we did, you know, as, as with everybody, we've really followed the recommendations of our, our local health department, the CDC, and, and all those those guidelines as they've developed and changed over time, and uh, now that it's been pretty, we've been pretty successful in that. That's great. That's great. Well, Dr. John Molteni, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, now, for folks that are interested in learning more about Prism, uh, uh, both their clinical division as well as Prism Academy, uh, the website is Prism autism.com and uh, Dr. John Maltini's information is also on there if you're interested in speaking with him and seeing if your child's the right fit for their program. Uh, John, thank you so much for being on the show and um, I look forward to continuing to, uh, to, to have PRISM be part of the, the Connecticut special education community and uh, uh, it's very exciting that you're starting a new school. So congratulations on that. Thanks, Jeff. We're uh, very excited about this next part of our, uh, our growth. Thank you. All right, everyone. Uh, thank you so much again for listening to another episode of Let's Talk Bedlock. We'll see you on the next show. Take care.